I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, I'm B. Wilson. Welcome to this LRB Bookshop event um, talking about The Woman Who Buried Herself by Alice Fowler, which I've just been told is the best-selling book at the LRB Bookshop this week by a mile, apparently. So it's lovely to be talking to Alice tonight on this cold evening, which it's pretty nice to be doing it via Zoom indoors not having to leave the house. Um, Alice Fowler, who I'm assuming you will know this because you've booked to attend this event. She's a gardener. She's a writer. She's published numerous gardening books. She told me earlier it was possibly eight, maybe more. She spent 10 years now at The Guardian as their gardening columnist, correspondent. And she did some of her training at Kew Gardens and also the New York Botanic Gardens. So welcome, Alice. Good, good, really good. Uh, like like you, glad to be indoors. Mm. It's really snowy up here. Yeah, and God. to me it's definitely not gardening weather, but is this still gardening weather to you? No, <laughs> not at all. I give up at this time of year and just read books. Good, oh, that's very reassuring. Good, because um, I'm a useless gardener, but um, even on sunny days, but today I really wouldn't have the motivation so I think you were going to start by reading a little bit from the book just to give people a kind of texture and idea of what it's about, because it's such a departure and very different from anything you've done before. But I want to ask you a bit more about that. Yeah. OK, I'm going to read. I'm going to read a little bit about the sun. Just because today has been so cold and grey, I'm going to read a little bit about the sun. I've also got to that age where I have to take my glasses off so I can see things. Um so I'm the opposite. This, I have to. I'm long-sighted. So I'm not, yeah, I'm still also always taking it off. Doing this, I can do it about here. Um, okay, so I will start with reading about spring returning. And just like that, the sun reappeared with warm winds, and she seemed pleased, tickled even by the woman's offerings. The soil sighed a deep breath, and green things appeared, pushed, and with them, the woman felt a surge too a desire to potter and play with her. The sun came and the sun went, as fickle as spring is. Other days had hoar frosts in the morning so hard that the snowdrops curtsied to the cold and flopped low and she retreated back to her depths. What seemed like a dance or a game, she would lead, the woman would follow, trying to coax her back when she retreated, was of course no such thing. Spring happens before you can see it, before you can feel it even. Deep down, hidden in her depths, she was stirring, not for the woman, but for the lengthening days and the difference between the cold of the nights and the quickening of the mornings that rose closer together. In and out they went, teasing each other, caressing each other, the woman's days lengthening too, in and out, in and out, inhaling deeper each day. The woman met her other loves. She flicked the skin on the bark of trees that she planted last autumn to see the hint of green sap rising. She tugged at branches that she passed on her daily walks to feel them flecked back with sap. She stole their flowers and filled her house with tiny, exquisitely designed buds covered in sheaves of fur that sprung open and sneezed pollen in the heat of her home. 
She didn't care. She was done with dusting. There was little point now. The woman trampled in so much soil each day on her boots that there was well-worn lines from the back door to the front. Occasionally, when there started to be a trench, she swept it all up back outside, but like the soil on her fingers at lunch, she liked inviting her in. She liked how after a winter of blankets and darkness, her two worlds were becoming once again. That's great. I mean, as you, everyone in the audience can probably tell from that excerpt, I mean, this is hugely different from reading one of Alice's brilliant, practical, but also, I mean, your garden columns, I do find them very poetic as well, but they are full of straightforward, I mean, a bit like someone writing a cookbook or something. This is the time of year and this is what you do. Whereas this is absolutely, I mean, it is pure fiction. It has a fairy tale quality. It reminded me at moments of Kafka metamorphosis or Ovid. I mean, there's some quite strange things going on. You sometimes think, is this witchcraft? Is it, it reminded me then of Shirley Jackson. It was almost, you're feeling, is this going into some horror territory? You just feel the intensity of this woman's relationship with the earth, with the soil. And I just wonder what led you, had it been inside you for a long time that you were going to make a switch or a parallel life in fiction alongside your nonfiction career? I mean, in, in some ways, that story is always going on in my head. So, like, I talk to myself a lot. I'll, I'll be honest about that. When I'm gardening, particularly, I just, like, sort of endlessly tell myself stories. It didn't really sort of ever occur to me to put any of them down. And it, it wasn't really till Daphne, who um, is who sort of runs Hazel Press, kind of came and put this challenge of who I would write for if I didn't actually have an audience. And it's such an interesting kind of question, particularly when you're a columnist and you write, like, 540 words every week and you know exactly when you've written the like 40th you know you can write completely to the kind of deadline you know who your audience is you know who your editor is you know exactly what you're supposed to be meeting them the idea of just sort of almost blowing them up and just not giving a damn if anybody could come with me because one of the things about a kind of weekly column is that you always have to be it's like cooking you know did the last instruction make sense can everybody follow it even if they read it wrong would they still you know do the right thing so it was kind of really delicious to think oh I don't actually I don't have to care about the audience they don't matter anymore it's just me and the page in which case what does that look like so like in some ways it was just purely indulgent like part of it part of the ridiculous nature was just me like kind of really loving kind of fantasy column writing like this is my fantasy column right like this is how I'd actually like to write every Saturday or just be kind of in this totally funny maybe made you can up world. From now on. maybe you've, you've now launched a new voice on the world <laughs> um, is a shock but in a, when you say this I find that a very interesting question who would you write for if you didn't have an audience but surely you still had an audience you were the audience well like I I guess I mean in some ways I yeah, no, I mean, I suppose I am. You, you are just writing for yourself. But I was also sort of deliberately, like, trying to displease myself. So I, I, like, Daphne and I had many conversations about going to the kind of awkward places and going to the places where, like, writing didn't technically work or were kind of sort of awkward hinges and bits which were kind of felt kind of banged together. Um, and part of me rereads it and feels a little bit embarrassed because I think, oh, that doesn't quite fit with that and that doesn't kind of you know, linked together in the way that you do when you sort of do more journalistic things. But then part of it was so delicious to sort of throw away those rules. And mm. and so I was writing for myself, but I was also trying to make myself feel really unsettled about it all and to see what that would kind of do. Because I find it a fascinating mix. I mean, we never find out the woman's name. She is just the woman. But the ways in which some bits of the story are very sort of mythical and, as I've said, fairy tale-ish and witchcraft-ish. It sort of reminded me of being a child in the garden. You're sort of stirring up potions and you're reacting, you're tasting the earth. And there's a lot of stuff about tasting the earth, which I think we've all done that as children. And then most of us stop at a certain point, except maybe gardeners don't stop. But then there were other bits, which I just thought were beautiful pieces of science writing almost. There's a bit where the woman decides to feed the soil, who she started to think of as her lover, um, with oyster shells. And there's a really beautiful page explaining better than almost any book I've read on oysters 
how an oyster is formed and how you get from an oyster to the shell and what the chemical composition of the shell is and precisely why that's good for the earth. And even though that was still a different style from your column, it was kind of um, there was a very factual grounding there. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could never get away from that. I, I, I was also really interested in this idea that there's lots of things where if you said to somebody, right, oh, this is really good science. It's really fantastic. It's as good as reading fiction. But a lot of people would be put off it. So I, I was kind of intrigued to see if I could take some of that really heavy, well, not heavy, but very detailed science and make it kind of light and playful enough to sort of stick within there. So, I mean, I, that's always something, I suppose, that's kind of running in my head endlessly, which is this, like, how can I explain, you know, my world is a very, very detailed, small world that really ends up down into kind of the molecules that hold the soil together. And I'm always looking at ways to make that sort of more entertaining and interesting than the kind of dry science paper kind of account that you would sort of that you might go to if you looked at if you look up oysters and why they're important you know it is quite a dry paper but yet then again it's fantastically and the way you wrote about it wasn't dry at all it was kind of lascivious and but also really really interesting it did genuinely explain it I felt I had lodged in my brain more about how an oyster is and how it develops from this tiny thing into something and why the interrelationship of things in the world I wondered if so that's Interesting. I didn't realise that it, the genesis of the book had been that the publisher approached you. But I was wondering to what extent you were inspired by other gardens in literature, because I think it was only after finishing your book and then really reflecting on it that I began to think it's such a theme of sort of, I mean, it's obvious, really, it's, it's there in the Garden of Eden. It's Paradise Lost. It's, I was thinking the wasteland, you know, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots, um, the spring rain. Then I was looking again at the Andrew Marvel poem, no white nor red, um, so amorous as the lovely green. I mean, the, the themes, the rich themes in your book of someone who's got this, could we almost call it the kind of eco-sexual relationship with the earth? I mean, it's, it's there very, very much in lots of other Western literature. I just wondered, were there other books in your head? Were there things you read? Um, like huge fan of Donna Haraway, and so uh, he's a kind of eco-feminist um, and uses a lot of um, sort of science fiction to kind of work her academic ideas into a kind of into a place of understanding. So I think I was sort of sort of partly driven by just reading lots of her stuff I guess I've um, never read any of which book would you start with? oh my god you have to read this in fact it's in, it's in my little um I don't know does this what is it back to front it's called so the carrier bag theory of fiction yeah um it's just a, a so short somebody just told me last week I have to read the left hand of darkness as well yes yeah you you yeah. really do you really do it's an extraordinary book I think also I had done that classic thing of thinking in my 20s when I thought I was you know consuming literature and stuff I thought science fiction was somehow a bit of a kind of you know it wasn't serious literature and as I've got older I've begun to understand how wrong it is because actually that whole idea of eco-sexuality is incredibly interesting to me I'm sort of endlessly looking to find these kind of new ways of kinship with the world around us and I think that sense of actually just really being openly allowed to say yes I love the earth like I really love the earth like it is it is beyond just a kind of um because I like gardening or yeah, because it's not just a polite Chelsea flower show kind of bouquet of roses or maybe the bouquet of roses itself something very voluptuous actually if we paid attention to it yeah I mean I feel like gardening is a very sensual act I don't think anybody who gardens seriously, you know, by by seriously, I mean somebody who gets up and spends all day gardening and just lunch is literally sugar to fuel the next four or five hours and then crawls to bed. Hasn't at some point had this incredibly sensual experience. You know, you get so bone tired that you end up you started off weeding, standing up, bending over. And by the end, you're on your you know, you're on your knees and then you're kind of and then you're sitting down and then you're almost kind of lying on the ground trying to kind of keep this energy up to keep this kind of 
furious relationship because by the time spring is coming it just feels like you can't keep up with the kind of fecundity and fertility of everything just it's you know it's all consuming it's all I think about all spring long I get up immediately and I want to be out in the garden as but you know I I downstairs in my pajamas already out into the garden to see what seedlings are up and stuff like this and to me that is a very central relationship and like I I do I marry my garden in those seasons like she 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 is my love you know she has to everybody has to compete with her actually that's the better way to think about it and and I wanted to just be sort of much more open and express that because I feel like sort of sometimes garden writing has become so prissy you know it's all about like sort of floppy sun hats and and kind of gentle walk and it's like no it's this like passionate like we really almost fight with each other all summer long to see who's going to win out um and I wanted to talk about that sort of side I suppose and then and still find this way to allow other people to feel that I suppose clearly it's autobiographical but it's also not like there are many things that I've never actually put myself in the soil when I started writing about it, I did contemplate. I was really interested in this um, piece of artwork by Keith Arnott, which is um, in Tate Britain. It's in the collection. It doesn't come out that often. Anyhow, it was a kind of series of photographs called Self Burial. And it came on TV in Germany in the like late 60s, randomly, every night, a different picture, black and white picture would appear of him. And he was like, he's like so slowly sinking into the soil. And I, I've always thought it was a really funny, brilliant piece. And I love the idea that it just sort of would appear at on mainstream TV in the middle of a program, just for a couple of seconds and then would go. And then the next night he'd sort of another picture of him a bit further buried until he completely is under the ground. And I should mention your book, it's a, a, this surrender into the soil. And that's what I, I think it did upend some of what I think about gardening I think it took me back to my relationship with running into the back garden as a child rather than what I thought gardening should be as a grown-up because I think maybe it is just that this prettiness as you say in the way that it's talked about but I kind of picture gardening as someone that isn't very good at it myself as an imposition of order on the natural world whereas the whole of this book really is there's a kind of push me pull you as you say like the there's a kind of battle in a way between the woman and the soil but it's about surrender it's about giving as you say on the final page yeah I mean I think there's this huge sea change happening in gardening right now which is like traditionally it has been about control and order and making a very strong aesthetic kind of um statement around us and flowers in particular but us and soil and all of that and I think now there's this huge shift the desire to be something which is more about being part of the ecology um move away from lawns like that i don't know i mean you know far more about this than i do but just i saw some short ecological film on the american lawn and the damage it does and how crazy it is the kind of the inputs and outputs are really bad and it looks great because it's green so we don't associate it with being non-ecological but actually we're just breeding these monocultures which are requiring all of these weed colors and Elect, unnecessary electrical mowing and but I've noticed there is that there are glimmers of a return to kind of wildflower meadows aren't there that that seemed to be maybe a little glimmer of some kind of spirit of your book out there in a non-fiction sort of way yes I mean I think there's a huge I think people are kind of just one beginning to wake up to how wonderful this kind of way of gardening is um and I think part of it is one of the interesting narratives around this whole kind of ecological gardening is that actually you have to do very little gardening because nearly all gardening is an imposition on the ecology. It's kind of much better to allow everything just to be. Um, and so what we have to start talking about is how we love gardening for ourselves. So we've always talked about gardening as being this kind of kind act to the environment where we order things and place things and make things look beautiful. And it's got, you know, the nature and the ecology of the whatever it is as existing as a garden doesn't give a damn about us or what we do and actually would be frankly much more full of insects and 
and the soil would be in a better state if we just completely walked away from it. So then we have to kind of acknowledge the fact that we want this relationship. You know, that's something I kind of I personally grapple with as a gardener. And I and I suppose I was starting to look at in in this in this work in some ways, because it is a real push me, pull me. And it's sometimes I do feel like I would, you know, the kindest thing I could do to my garden would just be sort of to compost myself into it. You know, I mean, it really like it would do really well off that. And I would stop talking <laughs> from it. And, and, and so, the you know, the title is quite literal. It's like what happens if you if you take that kind of idea to the extreme, really. Did it go through many drafts when you're writing it? Did, or did it come out quite quickly after you'd got the brief? Uh, it's been it didn't go through many. It's been sort of sh in that classic way. It's been shifted around a bit. Um, lovely um, Anna Selby, who's also part of Hazel Press, who's an amazing um, poet. Uh, and Daphne both said, look, actually, if you're a bit bolder and take this middle bit and make it the beginning, it's kind of it's got a more interesting mm. shift. And so that was quite nice. It had a really silly ending. Because I sort of didn't know what to do. And so I just thought, oh, I'll just give it a really silly ending. And then actually I went up to Glasgow and saw some amazing art about coal. And it was just, you know, when you see some and it was this long film and sort of sat in, in this gallery watching it. And I suddenly thought, oh, I don't need to be silly. I can actually be really honest about what I want, how I want to end it. And so I kind of came and got rid of the silly ending. But other than that, no, like it. I mean, I sort of feel slightly embarrassed about the fact that it's particularly because journalism, you get edited a lot. And this mm. feels really unedited to me. So it's part of me feels a bit embarrassed and part of me feels completely liberated. <laughs> and now that you are liberated, are you going to write more fiction? I've sort of started a much longer piece now. I don't know if it will be fiction because I sort of feel like I do happy happiest in non-fiction but I've definitely been allowed to kind of take off a kind of cloak of being reasonable <laughs> <laughs> that's all and I think whatever genre you're writing in it's always quite reassuring to be able to take that cloak off and I mean, that is a cloak for all of us really isn't it mm. um, it's interesting and I wonder if I don't know I wonder if garden audiences whether you've got an even stronger sense of needing to keep that cloak on somehow it is such a there's a particular way that British gardeners are. There are particular comforts. They're probably comforts and certainties and this word order that we've used that they might be looking for in a gardening column. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably really akin to the cooking world in that you've also got to make sure that someone who's coming to it for the first time ever can still get like to the souffle stage. Well, it has like, to work. Yeah. It absolutely has to work, and that's a that's yeah. a completely different form of writing yeah. from almost anything else. It's that instruction manual thing yeah. where actually somebody's putting themselves in your hands, and that is a responsibility, isn't it? You need it not to go wrong. You don't want them to go out in the garden and you've missed out the crucial step. Um, yes, and and, and, and cooking, which at least they can try again tomorrow night. Quite a lot of gardening is, you know, you don't see the result until two seasons. So if they get the kind of you haven't sort of added responsibility in that, like if they don't get the right bit in the first bit in spring, well, they have to wait till next year. So, mm. so, the, so that sort of sort of is a consideration. And don't get me wrong. I, I love doing it. You know, I, it's my it's my day job and, and I love teaching gardening. I want to be able to do it for as long as possible, for as long as anybody wants to hear it. But it is exactly that. It's just very liberating to get away from having to be right. Someone, we're going to open it up properly to questions at 7.40, but somebody's already put a question in, which actually I was going to ask about as well. I would, Laura Hill says, I would really love to hear Alice talk about the cover art of her book. Very, very beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. It's a Joseph Alba's piece. Daphne Astor, who runs, who Hazel presses her baby, has a relationship with the Albers Foundation, uh, which is a family relationship. Um, and so, yes, has been. So she chose it. But I am, mm. like, I am a huge Joseph and Annie. I mean, how can you not be a huge Joseph and Annie Albers fan? Mm. But particularly Annie Albers' um, work where she's, I don't know if you saw the big, you know, retrospective um, at the Tate Modern that was a couple of years ago, where she was sort of trying to use sort of weaving as a as a form of kind of 
almost early language. And every time I look at her pieces, I think, gosh, that really speaks how I am trying to talk to the soil. I really sort of, I really understand that desire to try and kind of almost musically write the notes out in some kind of form. And so I think her kind of, her weaving is magical in that way because it really does, I mean, weaving particularly in the sort that she was doing, which was so sort of attached to locality, you know, plant materials make up so much of the kind of the material that we use for clothing and, and weaving and art and all of that. So that, you know, the sense of colour and plants and soil are so woven into her work mm. that it's kind of magical to have have that kind of attachment to the front cover. So that and, and how much you talked about gardening and other art forms. And one of one of the questions that kept coming to me as I was reading your book is and obviously your book may have a different slant on this from as I've said, your gardens and literature is just this immense rich subject but what is the garden a metaphor for wow from some very basic level in the western canon it's, it is all about eden you know it's us trying yes. desperately yes. to get back to this kind of mythical place where everything did exist all at once with everything growing i mean the, the sort of the odd thing about that is i traveled probably about six or seven, maybe a bit longer now, to Kazakhstan and the wild fruit forests of Kazakhstan. I mean, the minute I walked into them, I was like, oh, wow, they weren't making the Bible up. They wow. literally, they mm. came, the, the, the Bible beginning is probably in the fertile crescents beginning because you can walk into these forests where absolutely everything, you know, the trees are dripping and apples and there's raspberries and there's strawberry and there's rhubarb and you know, um, there's pheasants and mushrooms and grapes growing up the apple trees and, uh, you know, uh, pistachios and and junipers. And it just goes on and, and you know, and mints and hemp. And like, honestly, everything I looked at, I was like, oh, you can eat that. You can eat that. You can eat that. You can eat that. And so, you know, it's the richness of the world. I'd love to go to Kazakhstan. I, the books of Caroline Eden, um, which I read quite a lot, which explore that part of the world and related parts of the world. In, relation to food and she just makes yeah. it sound so stunning and as if, yeah. as if I was going to say as if you were stepping back 50 years but in fact you're stepping back 2,000 years back. yes I think it's kind of more like that and so you suddenly think oh these origin stories that are they really are our origin stories do you know what I mean I mean they're not religious at all and the bible doesn't really have any meaning to me but it is interesting when you go to these places and you're like oh this was a thing. <laughs> this is a thing. And just the sheer fertility of fruit en masse is it's pretty hard as a human being not to be excited by that, isn't it? Yes. I think also when you come from, from kind of, it's not like Kazakhstan's not north, but differently north places where we are a country where we always have to be thinking about winter. Mm. Um, you know, we always have to be um, really considering how much we're going to put into storage because we don't, you know, we would otherwise only make through the winter with turnips kind of thing. So I think anywhere where you go and you think, God, oh, I mean, the amazing thing about these apple trees is that most of the apples persisted on the apple trees into the snow. And so it sort of shriveled up and kind of almost became like freeze dried. So there was a naturally dried fruit and you suddenly understood where the whole concept of dried fruit had come from. It wasn't yeah. something where people sort of actively went out and dried it. It's just that you could pickle this fruit. It's just that, huge weather. Yeah, I just had yeah. this current conversation with a Syrian chef um, who was called Faraj al-Nasser, who was describing how his mother used to make jam back in Syria. And all she did was she just took apricots and put them in the sun. So when he was asking her for, he, they're now separated because he's a Syrian refugee and she's in Egypt and he's here. So he was asking her for the recipe and she said, well, do you have sun? <laughs> he doesn't have sun in Britain, doesn't have the crucial ingredients. So he had to kind of figure out, well, if I'm here, if by some miracle I've managed to get Syrian apricots, which is a big if, then I need to put them in a very low oven and I need to add more sugar and I need to, but really yeah. what he's doing, which I think a lot of cooking actually is this, you're making up for the deficit of being mm -hmm. in a different environment without perfect fruit. I mean, in a way, various, I've forgotten who I, who I read saying this recently, some cookbook I read saying this, and that really 
what you're aiming for in most cooking is to reach the state of a piece of perfectly ripe fruit. And you, as a cook, you'll fall short because art is no match for nature, but it's a nice attempt. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, honestly, going to Kazakhstan was a really mind blowing kind of botanical experience just because you realise how readily available it was. How you didn't have to, I mean, it really sort of blows your mind also when you see those kind of complex fruit forests where there's so many layers of food and you realise how little work, you know, the, the ecology looks after themselves, which which is another thing that is coming to kind of gardening in a big way where people are being like, oh, let's stop trying to manipulate and actually just try and sort of replicate ways of growing, which are super ancient, really, and are very much indigenous ways of growing that have always been there and kind of in other places of the world and we're only just sort of coming around to it I suppose in some ways but it, it is such an interesting idea this 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 notion of Eden and I think that for a lot of white westerners Eden is like is whether you like it or not that that idea of Eden is strong in your sense of why you garden of course we have also a long political in particularly sort of Western Europe, gardens have been places of power. So people with money have big spaces and they make them look in a certain kind of way. And that tells you who they are and what they're doing and who can come to their court. And, you know, so there's there's also been a like a long tradition of gardens as a kind of political form of power, mm-hmm. as another kind of art. Or, or gardens full of fruits that only certain kind of people can eat. There's, with fruit, I find it so interesting. There's a whole... I don't know, discourse that somebody should write about fruit. Right? Fruit is either completely free or really expensive, isn't it? And that's sort of been the case for hundreds of years, but it feels oh, yeah. really, it, I mean, now it's hardly ever free unless you know about foraging. But there is still, I'm often struck like blackberries. Blackberries never seem to get used up in blackberry season. Like not enough people take all the blackberries, but they're there still. But then the rest of the fruit in our shops is somehow so far from the soil, isn't it? These yeah. blueberries flown in and is very, very far from those apples you're describing in Kazakhstan. So yeah. I can see the, the magic of, is part of the magic of being a gardener. Is, I mean, it, certainly I felt this in your book. It's a kind of, I know there's a, there's a form of gardening that's just pure consumerism. There's a form of gardening, which is probably the kind that many of us experience, where you go to the garden centre and spend an absolute fortune and you come back with, various pots of different sizes that maybe you didn't need but there's a very anti-consumerist feel in this book it's it's someone just just responding to the world um and there are there are moments where the woman does these things like I think there's one point where she has a phone call with some friends she occasionally alludes to um clothes but she sort of does this strange thing where she sort of dyes all of her clothes a pale shade of peach um by kind of dyeing them with this bark but it's very do you see it as a space where you can go and escape greens oh. escape buying escape yes this I mean, we're all on uh, for me it's always been really important that it's been as kind of anti-capitalist as possible really I, I started off actually, um, I mean, I trained as a horticulturalist and then I started off writing as um, a journalist for a magazine called Horticulture Week that comes out every week um, and is the trade magazine for horticulture. And so I sort of started off in this world, which is all about the kind of, you know, not necessarily the consumerist, but the kind of industry side of it. And, you know, if you've spent any time there, you see how much the kind of garden centre is exactly, it's almost... It's, it's not fair to say this to people who run garden centres, but there is an element of it which is set up to make sure that people fail so that you come back next year and buy the lavender. You just mean it's a oh, you're going to make me really like, paranoid now. I thought it was just I was bad at gardening. It's like an illuminated Bible. I'm going back to Bibles for some reason. But, you know, it, it, it's you can read it on many different levels right there's the kind of just instantly shiny pretty one and then if you can actually read it you can see so you know the garden center if you have a bit of knowledge you can kind of move through it in a very very different way than if you don't have knowledge and 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 it's an interesting model in that it is very much you know a product of capitalism what's not a product of capitalism right now um but for me the garden is like this you know the the wonderful thing about it is it actually is a really um a space full of equality 
when you can when you can kind of pull down the kind of you know clearly you have to have access to space and that's a major thing i'm not kind of that that is a huge thing in our society but actually once you get there we will become very equal and and what a long kind of um time in the industry has taught me is that i've been to the most expensive gardens in the world fabulously kind of you know wealthy people who own these extraordinary spaces where they wrote so much money at it and i've been to sort of wonderful back gardens and the the, the thing that makes a good garden isn't money but love and i kind of say that to people over and over and over again and, and it sounds so trite but it's actually true it's the it's it's the relationship that you decide to have the garden that makes it beautiful, not the fancy designers or the like, you know, hard material or how much you spent on a tree. It's actually how much time you decide to put into the space physically, almost with your, you, with your very body that kind of translates into it so that you can see some gardens, which on paper would sound so naff. But when you go into them and you see how much the gardener has a relationship with these you know, begonias or bedding plants or whatever it suddenly becomes the most beautiful place you can imagine to be anywhere else because it's that thing it's about the gardener and the garden and and it's not the garden it's the gardener and the ecology really I mean that's I think the the, the big lesson is when you stop seeing it just about being plants and you start seeing it as this whole world which is filled with insects and, and the soil worms. and a lot of worms in your book yeah <laughs> Yeah. So this really special place where just throwing money at it seems really, you know, you, you wouldn't want to do it anyhow. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think that's a great moment on which to move to questions. Lulu Allender says, your book sounds wonderful. Do you approach the act of creating fiction in the same way you approach gardening, letting it take on its own energy and lead you somewhere? Or do you plan and plot your writing more from the outset? That's such a good question. And actually, I never really stopped to think about it, but I do exactly the same thing, which is I don't plan the garden and I definitely didn't plan this work of fiction. I have this sort of daydream in the back of my head which is that there's a kind of aesthetic that I want to at some point be in. And I don't ever put that on paper. I just have this sort of, so my garden has got this very wild kind of cottage garden feel. It feels like it's kind of you're basically on the edge of a forest and you're kind of going to move into sort of um, a kind of darker space towards the end of it. And and like that is a space that I feel really happy in. And and so I've just sort of build the garden as I go. And I very much wrote this book, this book as I went. So, yeah, turns out I'm not much for putting on paper. I, if I put something on paper, I'd, I mean, I'm a contrary as well. The minute I put it on paper, I get into the garden and want to chuck it out. I, I don't cook. 
I, I mean, I can't bake because I can't follow a recipe. I, I read a recipe. I love it. I learn to make it. And then the next time I want to change something in it immediately. So I think I've got I a very... Like um, I've just written my first cookbook and I still feel like that. Like I argue with myself on even when I'm following my own recipe, I'm always in two minds. There's something, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Just to stay on those train tracks. And it isn't always the best way either, because if, if you're looking at what's in front of you, um, ingredients never stay the same. A garden certainly never stays the same. So you, you need I to think stay. there's probably really strong parallels between exactly that about the kind of the kind of cooking that you need to do. I mean, I think there's exactly the same parallels, actually, which is the kind of cooking that you need to do for restaurants is almost, is sort of akin to the kind of garden designing that you need to do if somebody's paying you. And the scratch cooking that you do at home is also the kind of scratch gardening that you do at home. You know, they, they, they're so much using the resources more... you have and not just rushing out and buying something else yeah. because you think it's going to be the right thing. Yeah. Um, this is a really good question. Um, and I, we haven't discussed this enough because actually um, my answer to this from having read your book is yes. PJ says, do you think it's possible to queer or reclaim that idea of Eden? I mean, I would say your whole book is a kind of queering of Eden. But I'd love to hear your answer. Yes, I think I am trying to very much re like I think one of the things that, that I've suddenly realised in writing this book is that I need to be like I have I have definitely repressed a lot of my queerness. And it's only, you know, when I came out later in life that I could start to really express it. And that's the only thing I want to do now. Like to me, gardening is so unbelievably queer, or at least my experience of gardening is incredibly queer. And I think it's that's 100 percent where I want to be is exactly in that idea. I don't know if it's possible to do it. I don't know if I can do it, but I think we should all attempt to. Uh, that's for sure. I'm, I'm you know, I sound like I'm also really hung up on the idea of Eden. I'm not too sure I care too much about Eden. But what I do care about is in this kind of embracing eco-sexuality and kind of queer ideas about us in nature is about making a lot more space for the many differences you know gardening has so for so long has been talked about like women garden like this and men like garden like this and men like control and women like flowers i'm like oh no had enough of it it's really time we move past all of that do you know what i mean i want you know, because I can be both of those people in any one moment in the garden. And so I want a space that really allows for us to express ourselves in our many ways and the many needs that we have for nature, I suppose. So, yes, I think it is possible. Have I, 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 I actually, I mean, the question more or less is I felt I haven't done a good enough job of describing this book because you so are. I mean, the relationship between the woman and the soil is just is so deeply sexual but not sexual in this in a sort of binary straightforward way there's this uh, um there's a bit i've just found page 18 the words so often used for weeding them out were ones of war of battles and ways to conquer to control and own it was a universal language these days but the woman felt one born out of men it was not that her lover didn't understand this she had her own responses the woman felt them in the final give of the root, the last hold between it and the soil around it, when it took all her might to will the plant towards her and the energy was finally transferred over. She understood how old her lover was and how many times before she'd reenacted this gesture. It's astonishing. There's so much there. I think this is this is definitely something quite beyond Eden. It's it, I would say it's a new Eden. Um, so I'm not, I need to stop asking questions because other people have got many others. I'm going to ask them in succession. Isabel, on art, do you find the galleries and exhibitions you go to find their way into your gardening just as books might? Art does, for sure, and always has. Uh, often uh, going to see paintings is one of the ways I understand how you start to express what a garden should look like or how you should even talk about a garden. I think there's a kind of energy in good painting that really expresses the same energy that's kind of needed in terms of movement of how a garden aesthetically kind of plays out. And I love when I want to write, going to listen to really loud, any kind of loud music, 
I don't really care. I go out, you know, if I'm going to write the next day and I want to write something really kind of, I love going to a gig and just having kind of noise blasted at me. I think it's like, I, um, and then I actually read, I was listening to this wonderful piece by this incredible Austrian, um, biologist where she's talking about how water and soil interact and how, uh, plants can actually hear water. And it, and, and I suddenly thought maybe sound has a kind of, maybe the way she was talking about water, I thought, oh, that's how I feel about loud sound when you go out dancing and you come back with all this really amazing energy the next day, even though you're exhausted. Yeah. As if the vibrations are in your body almost. Yeah. 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 I, I and do you it. listen to the music while you garden? No. Oh, uh, sometimes, sometimes. I used to a lot when I was younger and as I've got older I've been more interested in trying to actually listen to the garden and I realised that the act of putting headphones can really stop you hearing kind of some insects which are trying to tell you things. Steph Morris, how do you feel about human beings and other animals when they interfere with or damage your plants and soil? Hmm, I mean it's a, <laughs> that's a good question. If it's a slug, I mean I feel like slugs are my zen masters. And I just always feel like that's a very interesting, long philosophical kind of uh, debate I'm having <laughs> with me and my environment. Uh, when I feel like, I mean, I I feel so angry when I feel like people are willfully ruining environments. I become that, like I've become that enraged middle-aged woman. You know, when people don't get it. And, I, and, and my wife always has to say, you know, they're not thinking about the world in quite the same way you are. You know, they don't maybe understand that that's a wildflower. That so what, would, what would trigger that thought in you? What would trigger the anger? Oh, I mean, for instance, in my park, they keep spraying glyphosate on to keep the edges neat. And I keep writing. <laughs> I keep writing for them, telling them that they're complete and utter idiots. Mm. <laughs> they will be judged. Mm. By me and by many other people when everybody else works it out. Um, I suppose they still don't have the information or maybe they have. I mean, I find it extraordinary the extent to which the information is out there and yet it hasn't always trickled through. And this is I would say this is analogous to food. I would say we can see the harm being done to human bodies by ultra processed food. The evidence there is so clear, but the industry does its best to hide it from people. We know that meat consumption is too high. The evidence is quite clear. But the meat lobby group is one of the most powerful in the world. And the people's heads are full of different Edens, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, well, and also this, actually, this book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. Have you ever read this book? No, never read that. By um, Anna uh, Lohenhoff-Sting. Um, is the most incredible. It's an academic book, but it's also not an academic book. It's all about the um, Matsutake mushroom. But actually, it's a really good way of explaining the ecology of late capitalism, I suppose. We are endlessly sort of sold capitalism in a kind of linear line. And actually, it's a kind of web of complexity. And sort of when you read, a, when I read this, I sort of, you understand why sometimes when you have knowledge but can't do the right thing, the web that is in place, the net that stops you from kind of actually breaking it forth. You know, it's not as simple as just being able to say, well, we should be able to say to that man over there it's wrong. Because actually kind of. Well, he's part of a web. He's definitely part of a web, isn't he? The yeah. man who's consuming the glyphosate. Yeah. yeah. And, and that the economies of capitalism is a lot more web-like than it is linear and so it is very hard to break away from that kind of netting I suppose you don't feel so angry with the slugs was your answer oh, no. I mean the slugs are interesting the slugs are always just telling you something about your own ego mm. so you know you can feel really angry with them but the minute you step back you're like oh okay mm. <laughs> You've got a point. Well, maybe this is as much their space as your space in some well, way. Well, and also that you're often using energy. I mean, slugs, the simplest way I can sort of describe to anybody is that slugs are there to use up excess energy. So the soil is is a is a kind of is a bank, for want of a better way to talk about it, that has so much energy in it. And in its own kind of natural state, a garden ecology will endlessly recycle that money and that bank money will just kind of it won't grow it will just endlessly be in use in the best possible way so it is sort of like 
a very old, long set of stocks. I suppose it grows a bit, but it's 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 just more than anything else. It kind of keeps itself going. But too much excess. And that actually is ultimately, even though to us, it's like, oh, look at all this extra green growth up on the top. It's it's robbing resources from the soil. So the slug is there to recycle it back in. Mm. So quite often when the slug attacks something, it's because you've not seen how much you're egotistically trying to extract. Mm. And they are literally taking down weakness. And so once you begin to understand that and you can see it and you think, why is this plant? Why are these plants weak? Why are they endlessly getting attacked by slugs? It's, it's because the soil is out of balance. And so then when you know that, that's fascinating. And so you can start looking at the, what the slug is eating and going, oh, so there's a little vein of soil here that's not quite as happy as the soil mm. over there. This plant isn't sitting quite so happy with its neighbour and it's and they're battling and that means there's a weakness going on and the slug exploits that. That's so interesting. So it's kind of about fortifying the soil rather than attacking the slug. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. I, I didn't know that. Um, Anonymous writes, how has your writing or relationship with the land been influenced by indigenous wisdom from around the world? What reading on indigenous relationships with Earth would you recommend that have informed you, if any? I mean, I don't know anybody. If you haven't read it, Braiding with Sweetgrass by Robin Kilner Waller. I can never quite get the, her surname the right way around. But anyhow, just look up Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, is the most beautiful book in the world. And if you can get to the end of it and you're not in tears, then I think wow. you need to okay. like, have your, your pulse checked because it is so beautiful about our relationship with the land it's 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 particularly also about how gardening is one of the best ways for us to sort of heal our relationship with the land because we have we are not in a good place with it uh and it is also very hopeful and so it's a it, she is a, a an amazing botanist she's also a first nation woman from uh north america so she sort of melds her botanical career and history in with indigenous wisdom and it's just phenomenal uh and then she has another book i don't know where which is about moss might be called gathering moss um i'm gonna there's two more questions at least coming in i'm not sure if this is salix or sally x um your book sounds beautiful can't wait for my copy to arrive do you have any advice for people wanting to get into garden writing uh, I think the act of keeping a diary is a really good way. Like a garden diary is just a fantastically good thing if you're trying to learn to garden because it's very, it's very interesting to go back and, you know, you quite quickly you'll have a year and the next year you can go, Oh, this is how I was feeling in April. I don't feel that way or the season's different or whatever. Um, but the, also the, I mean, the only thing you can ever say to anybody who wants to write is just get on with it. Like every day, put 200 words down. That's my advice for anybody who wants to write. Doesn't matter what those 200 words are. Doesn't matter if it's even just 200 words of the shopping that you need to buy. The act is sitting at the desk and kind of because it's a muscle memory that the biggest fear is the blank page. But if you go and put 200 words down every day, you're no longer scared of it. So that when you're there to say the thing you're doing, you don't go, what am I going to write? You just are already in that. Um, and then you become a writer. You are a writer at that yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's that, it's one of those really annoying male journalists who, you know, from the 60s, who said it, which is, you know, the world can be spit in. There's no such, everybody can write. It's just some people need to. Mm. And it's, it turns out to be very true. Like, I, writing is as important as gardening. Mm. Like, the days I don't write, you know, I feel a little like, mm. out of sorts. Yeah. Isabel asks, just as it is sensual, do you find gardening can in turn make you feel sexless, i.e. neither the man trad literature presumes us to be, nor the feminine flower lover to be really reductive and use the binary? Well, I don't find that like androgynous middle non-binary bit sexless. So I suppose mm -hmm. the other thing that, that 
I really like is actually when I find myself in a place where I feel like I am you know to go back to the binary both male and female I actually the more I the older I get the more I realize that's my happiest space is where I'm flexing kind of both sides in equal parts and so uh and and actually if I'm really honest gardening always makes because I feel physically very strong when I garden and because I am actually using all my body I I when I've been gardening, even if I'm exhausted and covered in twigs and mud, and I actually feel very sexy and strong and myself. And it's the moment where I feel I can really can hold myself sort of in a way that I wouldn't necessarily feel doing other things. So to me, the act of just physically being out in nature is incredibly, yeah, is sexy. Sure. And, and gardening has been in your life for a long time, right? I mean, I read somewhere your mother was an amazing gardener. Yeah. And you grew up with gardens yeah. and chickens and. My mother is, I mean, she's sort of, she's an old lady now, but she's, even as an old lady, she's immensely strong. So I also never had this notion that like, she's, you know, we're not tall or physically big women but my mother could move mountains. So I never had the notion that I couldn't do that either. So I'm always been very grateful for this idea that like, you know, your body is as strong as you will it to, you know, you can move anything if you put your mind to it. It's always There's been. A lot of, in, the, in the book, the, the woman, the protagonist of the story spends a lot of time like choosing not to use tools, using her own fingers in the soil and kind of relishing the look of the dirt under her nails, but also just that feeling of her hands being the tools. Is that something yeah. you feel as well? I am actually probably not quite as like, I do like tools. I I want, yeah, I wanted her to be going a bit nuts. I wanted her to, I mean, that was part of the kind of sense of where she would just give herself over to it, was that she was so much had given up on even having any, like she didn't care if she sort of tore herself and ripped herself. Like it was just a an opportunity to her for, to invite the soil into her i suppose um i do so that's like a fictional work. device you do still use i do still use and yeah there's limits to what the human body can like pruning yeah. would be hard to do with human yeah hands. i mean and also after i mean years of gardening my hands are shot through so if you don't have gloves and you know hand tools you're they're just wrecked really is that I can see that we have about three more minutes. Is there something that I should have asked or was there some aspect of the book you were expecting me to ask about? I know I, was, I didn't know. There were just so many specific. Well, I don't know. I'm just now interrupting myself. You say if there was. I No, I don't think so. I mean, it, to me, it's just like much of my life. It's just a big surprise. Like I never thought, oh, I know. And then one day I'll sit down and write a really weird fiction book on gardening. Like. I don't know. My life has never really been planned like that. So everything is a great, funny surprise to me. Uh, and this this book is the funniest, greatest surprise of them all. And I'm just super grateful to Hazel Press for like making this space, being prepared to kind of just, you know, put their energy and money and time behind wonderful experimental stuff the rest of the um you know hazel press has a number of books out now lots of them are really beautiful poetry pamphlets and everything i've read so far just makes me so excited to a be part of the family but also that somebody's preparing to take this risk in publishing to just go and do weird and wonderful things because publishing has become like many things it's become quite formulaic and dull and so it's really exciting that's why it works I mean it feels absolutely I mean, which I, I feel all fiction writing should as if you're inside someone's head and even learning I know I wanted to kind of just so many bits I could pick out but just these wonderful granular details of the way in which the soil can have the metallic odor of garlic and iron but also snot snot that tastes like mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> I'm now going to try next time I have a runny nose try and notice my snot tastes like mushrooms but I felt it really felt it felt unguarded it felt true and it it felt as if you were having a wonderful funny sometimes crazy definitely queering or beaten it was surprising to read and it and it stays with you so um yeah I 
recommend it to anyone here that hasn't yet got it. Um, and clearly lots of you have already got it or have ordered it. Um, thank you so much for being here with us virtually. I think we're fantastic yeah. questions. And thank you so much, Alice. It was really lovely to talk to oh, you. Thank you for such good chat. It's been, I'm a, been a huge fan of your work for a really long time. So it's really oh, nice. So kind. And I realise we didn't talk about your work. So that's we the next. We talk about my work. It's not, that's not what it's about. Yeah. No, but next I'm, time I'd like to talk about your work. This, and I need to, I'm going to follow up these book recommendations. Sweet Grass, was that the one? Braiding, braiding Sweet Grass. Braiding Sweet Grass. It's honestly so beautiful. And if and I if don't cry, I'm it, dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to read it, then she does it as an audio book. And she has, because she's a, a university lecturer, she's very good at reading. So she has a lovely voice. So it's equally as nice to listen to. <laughs> so I might listen or I might read. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.